From New York, this is Democracy Now! I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Sixty years ago today, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave his historic I Have a Dream speech at the 1963 March on Washington. On Saturday, thousands gathered in Washington to mark the anniversary, but the day was marred by news that a white supremacist gunman had shot dead three black people at a dollar store in Jacksonville, Florida. This is a dark day in Jacksonville's history. Any loss of life is tragic. But the hate that motivated the shooter's killing spree adds an additional layer of heartbreak. Speak to the prize-winning journalist Gary Young about racism in America, gun violence, and the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. Then the city of White Plains, New York, has agreed to a $5 million settlement with the family of Kenneth Chamberlain, a black 68-year-old former Marine shot dead by police in his own apartment after they came to him for a wellness check when he accidentally triggered his medical alert pendant. We'll speak to his son, Ken Chamberlain Jr. I think that people are now coming together and, and they're saying that extrajudicial killings and summary executions of unarmed black men, women and children is no longer going to be tolerated. I mean, what we have been witnessing for decades are crimes against humanity. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Jacksonville, Florida, gunmen shot and killed three black people Saturday in a racist attack, which the U.S. Justice Department's investigating as a hate crime. The three victims, who were killed in front of and inside a dollar store, were identified as 52-year-old Angela Michelle Carr, 19-year-old Anult Joseph, known as A.J. Laguerre, Jr., and 29-year-old Gerald Deshaun Gallion. The shooter was identified as Ryan Palmiter, a 21-year-old white man who died by suicide after his rampage. This is Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters. The shooter had authored several manifestos, one to his parents, one to the media, and one to federal agents. Portions of these manifestos detailed the shooter's disgusting ideology of hate. Plainly put, this shooting was racially motivated, and he hated black people. The gunman had no criminal history and legally purchased the two weapons he used earlier this year, a Glock handgun and an AR-15-style rifle. The guns had swastikas drawn on them. Before the attack, the shooter was seen at Edward Waters University, a historically black college. He drove away after a security guard turned him back. On Sunday, Governor Ron DeSantis spoke at a vigil where he was booed by crowds. One attendee shouted, your policies cause this. Florida Governor DeSantis and Florida Republicans have imposed racist laws, including rolling back diversity and inclusion policies and attacking African-American studies. DeSantis also opposes gun law reform. As the massacre in Jacksonville was unfolding in Washington, D.C., thousands of people gathered for the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Gregory Jackson of the Community Justice Action Fund addressed gun violence in his speech. 
every year over 138,000 people are killed from this crisis. This is the number one cause of death for all youth in America. The number one cause of death for all black men in America. The number two cause of death for all black women and all Latino men in America. But yet we have not seen the action to deal with the biggest health crisis of our time. In the past 30 years, we have only seen one law passed to address gun violence. One law. And yet our bodies are laying on the pavement every day. Every eight minutes, another life is lost. In Zimbabwe, President Emerson Mnangagwa was declared the winner of last week's election, securing another five-year term after a delay in polls and accusations of a rigged election. European election observers said the vote fell short of established standards, noting, quote, acts of violence and intimidation resulted ultimately in a climate of fear, unquote. Zimbabwean opposition leader Nelson Chamisa called the election a gigantic fraud and asked neighboring countries to intervene. It is clear that we are rejecting the election is a sham, the result. The process itself, we disregard it, and it's in line with what the SADC observers have said. We reject this sham result and flawed process based on the disputed figures. The Western African nation of Gabon shut down Internet access and imposed a curfew following its national election Saturday amidst voting delays and as opposition leader Albert Ando Osa denounced fraud in his challenge against incumbent President Ali Bongo Ondimba. Bongo has already served two seven-year terms. His family's been in power for over half a century. Critics accuse Bongo of not using Gabon's oil wealth to improve the lives of one-third the population living in poverty. In Niger, military coup leaders ordered armed forces on maximum alert as they warned of a heightened threat of attacks by ECOWAS troops. The West African bloc has readied their forces to intervene if a diplomatic resolution to the coup is not reached. Meanwhile, Niger's junta ordered the French ambassador to leave the country. Demonstrators rallied Friday to show support for the military rulers one month after the July 26 coup. We're not in the 18th century, where someone has to impose or dictate to us what we should do. No, this is about our independence, and I believe that if the CNSP takes a decision, it must be respected. France must realize that this is no longer the colonial era. Today, we're in the 21st century, and France must learn to respect our ideals if it wants things to move forward together. In Haiti, at least seven people were killed after gang members armed with machine guns opened fire on protesters in Canaan Sunday. The rally against gang violence had been organized by a local church. Canaan is a makeshift town near the capital, Port-au-Prince, built by people who lost their homes in Haiti's devastating 2010 earthquake. Survivors of Sunday's attack also placed blame on the pastor who organized the rally, then continued the march even as the shooting broke out. They opened fire on us with all sorts of guns. The pastor's followers really believed what he told them. He said they were bulletproof, that those who were wounded had no faith. I was there. I saw everything with my own eyes. They were firing and the pastor was walking. Hundreds of thousands of Haitians have been internally displaced or forced to migrate due to worsening violence. The U.N. reported some 8,700 residents have been forced to take shelter in a crowded sports center in Port-au-Prince. 
Russian authorities say genetic analysis has confirmed Wagner Group chief Yevgeny Prigozhin died in last Wednesday's plane crash, along with some of Wagner's top officials. The Kremlin has denied responsibility for the crash, which happened just two months after Prigozhin led a, an aborted mutiny against Russia's military, and President Vladimir Putin vowed to punish the act. In Guatemala, a former military colonel has been convicted of crimes against humanity for his involvement in the killing of over two dozen indigenous people in 1982. Juan Ovalle Salazar was sentenced to 20 years in prison. The massacre of 25 Maya Achi people, most of them children, took place during some of the bloodiest years of Guatemala's U.S.-funded war and came under the ruling of U.S.-backed military dictator Fran Rios Montt. Eight former members of the Guatemalan Armed Forces were acquitted. Rights activists continue to demand justice. We want those responsible for the massacre of our brothers in Rancho Bajuco and Baja Verapaz to be sentenced by the judges. As we have always said, as long as there is no justice in Guatemala, peace cannot be built. Rios Montt was convicted of genocide in a historic 2013 trial. That ruling was later overturned by a hard higher court. In related news, a judge in Guatemala City has granted former President Otto Pérez Molina's request to be released from prison and be placed on house arrest. The former president first has to pay several fines, totaling about $1.3 million. He was forced to resign following historic nationwide protests in 2015, convicted of corruption and running a multimillion-dollar bribe scheme. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison in 2022. Pérez Molina served as a regional commander under Rios Montt using a different name. Back in the U.S., a Texas ban on gender-affirming care for youth is set to go into effect this week on Friday, despite an injunction issued last week against the ban. The Travis County judge said in her Friday ruling the law would cause patients and providers to, quote, suffer probable, imminent, and irreparable injury, unquote. But Texas's attorney general immediately appealed, staying the decision. Meanwhile, a Missouri judge allowed a ban on gender-affirming care for minors and some adults to take effect starting today. The law is currently being challenged by rights groups on behalf of doctors, groups serving the trans community and affected families. In Georgia, a federal judge in Atlanta is hearing arguments today from the legal team of Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as he attempts to move his charges to federal court, where Meadows could claim immunity due to his position in government at the time of the offenses. The outcome could have major implications for Trump and other co-defendants in Fulton County's racketeering indictment over Trump and his allies' attempts to overturn his 2020 election loss. All 19 defendants have now surrendered. Fulton County DA Fannie Willis is expected to set up her case against the co-conspirators during today's arguments. Separately, a trial date is expected to be announced today in Trump's federal election interference case. Trump's lawyers are attempting to postpone his trial until 2026, while federal prosecutors have proposed a January start date. The European Union's sweeping new rules on large tech companies kicked in Friday as lawmakers seek to rein in harmful and illegal content and digital monopolies. The new legislation regulates social media, targeted advertising, user private 
privacy policies and fake or illicit products from e-commerce sites. Among the affected companies are Amazon, Apple, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Snapchat, and TikTok. Violations could lead to billions of dollars in fines. And here in the United States, Donald Trump made his return to X, formerly known as Twitter, Thursday with a fundraising post featuring his mugshot. Trump had been banned from Twitter following the January 6th insurrection, but that ban was lifted after Elon Musk purchased Twitter. Earlier this month, the rights groups and users of X sounded the alarm after reports that paying subscribers to the platform will have to send their ID and a selfie for verification to an Israeli software company. The firm... Attentix was founded by former Israeli intelligence officers and has been implicated in Israel's surveillance of Palestinians. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we talk with the prize-winning journalist Gary Young about Saturday's racially motivated shooting in Jacksonville and the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. Stay with us. Tell me how we got over long. Got over, performed by Mahalia Jackson at the six at the original March on Washington in 1963. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Yes, 60 years ago today, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave his historic I Have a Dream speech at the 1963 March in Washington for jobs and freedom. On Saturday, thousands gathered in D.C. to mark the anniversary. But the day was marred by news that a white supremacist gunman shot dead three black people at a store in Jacksonville, Florida. Authorities say the gunman initially tried to enter the historically black college Edward Waters University, but he was turned away by a security guard. The gunman then drove to a Dollar General store, where he shot dead 52-year-old Angela Michelle Carr, 19-year-old A.J. Laguerre Jr., and 29-year-old Gerald Deshaun Gallion. The gunman was armed with a Glock handgun and an AR-15-style rifle, which had a swastika drawn on it. Authorities said the gunman purchased the guns legally, even though he'd been involuntarily held for a mental health examination in 2017. The gunman later fatally shot himself. The Justice Department's investigating the shooting as a hate crime. Police said the shooter had written racist manifestos prior to the shooting. President Biden said in a statement, quote, we must say clearly and forcefully that white supremacy has no place in America. This is Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters. The weapons that the shooter used today are a Glock and an AR-15-style rifle. 
This is a dark day in Jacksonville's history. Any loss of life is tragic. But the hate that motivated the shooter's killing spree adds an additional layer of heartbreak. There's no place for hate in our community. And this is not Jacksonville. Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters. We're joined now by Gary Young, prize-winning journalist, professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, author of several books, including The Speech, the story behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, which was just updated with a new introduction for this 60th anniversary of that historic day in Washington. Gary Young's most recent book is Dispatches from the Diaspora, from Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter, just about to be published. He's also author of Another Day in the Death of America. Young worked for The Guardian for 26 years, including 12 years as a U.S. correspondent. Gary, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Before we move on to the 60th anniversary of that famous March on Washington and Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. If you can respond to what happened at just about the same time as the anniversary uh, rally in Washington on Saturday in Jacksonville, talk about the white supremacist gunman using guns that um, he had legally gotten, even though he had been involuntarily evaluated for mental health issues in 2017. He had that Glock and an AR-15. Uh, well, thanks for having me uh, on the show, Amy, and uh, good morning to you. Uh, I mean, a, a, a few things really come to mind, and the, the first is that in a range of ways, America has all the same problems that the rest of, certainly Western Europe has in terms of racism. I'm talking to you from uh, Italy, which has a fascist government. Um, uh, it has inequality. It has people with mental health problems. It has racism. The thing that it also has, which none of these other places have, and easy access to uh, weapons, which can be weapons of uh, significant destruction, uh, uh, as in firearms. And that makes everything in America more lethal. It makes its racism more lethal, its domestic violence more lethal, uh, any kind of uh, social uh, uh, dispute or interaction more lethal. It makes suicide more lethal, because if you if you really want to commit Suicide, a gun will do it very much more effectively than anything else. And then you don't have the chance to change your mind. So in a range of ways, we see this more lethal manifestation uh, of, uh, of racism. The second thing that uh, I think is that this hate from this young man did not come from nowhere. There was a context. I think it's a stretch to say a cause that he has been listening to Trump or been listening to DeSantis and therefore went out and murdered black people. But certainly a context, a, a clear context in which this murders, these murders, this mass shooting took place. If you are surrounded by the kind of hate, the kind of hateful speech, the kind of uh, political machinations, the uh, the banning of books, the um, suppression of elections, the decision that some people's votes don't matter, 
the the uh, that really vicious political culture and racist political culture that has become embedded at the heart of American politics, then that has an effect. It's supposed to have an effect, and this is one of the offshoots of that effect. There's been there's always been hate crimes in America, but there's been a significant increase in those hate in the number of hate crimes, and particularly anti-black hate crimes. And one has to be able to connect that to the political situation that uh, uh, surrounds us. The final thing I would say is that it is consistent. There have been, particularly since um, George Floyd's murder, there's been a rise in uh, uh, anti-racist consciousness. There's been uh, a, uh, an increase in uh, uh, capacity in, in in anti-racist work and in anti-racist and, and a spread of anti-racist thinking. And just like with the March on Washington, where within about a month, I think, um, they had firebombed uh, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham and killed four little girls uh, and injured many as they were on their way back from, uh, as on their break from Sunday school, that we see the backlash, this violent, uh, desperate, and um, uh, and ultimately kind of defeated uh, uh, lashing out of a section of the uh, of the racist community, and so it, it is consistent in in a range of ways, and it, it should shift our understanding when there is this um, notion of the uh, King's Dream speech as being folded into America's liberal mythology. America's always getting better. It's always getting more wonderful. It's always, and in a range of ways, it isn't. And this, so this should be a corrective to any kind of um, uh, uh, happy talk that there might be around that 60th anniversary that doesn't take into account the realities of now and the fact that as things can go forwards, so can they go backwards. So let's be very clear about that march on Washington. In fact, uh, it was on August 28th, 1963, um, which was uh, observing the anniversary of the death of Emmett Till. Right, a 14-year-old boy who was killed, um, lynched by whites, um, taken from his uncle's home in the middle of the night in Money, Mississippi. That's right. That um, uh, it took place uh, uh, honoring that anniversary and and uh, and evoking a range of uh, violent acts. That had um, uh, that had taken place throughout the uh, uh, the decade or so prior, but that had also seen a huge swelling of resistance. That said, you know, um, uh, not that African Americans ever just accepted uh, uh, that lot, but the organisation uh, uh, and the level of resistance had been uh, ramped up. In that decade, since um, uh, also since Till's uh, murder, uh, and that in some ways 
the uh, March on Washington was a symbolic kind of crescendo to that period of resistance. So I want to go from Jacksonville to the 60th anniversary of the 63 March on Washington. People often don't realize its official title was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. These were the words of the Reverend Martin Luther King 60 years ago today. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? That was Reverend Martin Luther King 60 years ago. Well, on Saturday, thousands, on Saturday, thousands gathered in Washington, D.C. to mark this 60th anniversary. Organizers included the Reverend Al Sharpton of the National Action Network. 60 years ago, Martin Luther King talked about a dream. 60 years later, we're the dreamers. The problem is we're facing the schemers. It's the streamers on one side, the schemers on the other. The dreamers are fighting for voting rights. The schemers are changing voter regulations in states. The dreamers are standing up for women's right to choose. The schemers are arguing whether they're going to make you stop at six weeks or 15 weeks. The dreamers are saying that if you're LGBTQ or trans, you have a right to your life. The schemers are saying we're going to make you look like you're something that should not be tolerated in human society. It's the dreamers against the schemers. The dreamers are in Washington, D.C. The schemers are being booked in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Fulton County Jail. The dreamers will win. The dreamers will march. The dreamers will stand up. Black, white, Jewish, LGBTQ. We are the dreamers. We're the children of the dream. That's Al Sharpton on the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. But let's go back to the original 1963 march and that famous speech, the one you, Gary Young, wrote a book about, the speech, the story behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. We chose that clip of the dream because, in fact, it wasn't going to be in this speech. Is that right? Talk about uh, his close ally, the person who was with him the night before— uh, he was with a group of his allies talking about what he should say, the Reverend Wyatt Walker. Well, that's right. The Reverend Wyatt Walker um, had said to uh, King, because the, the dream sequence had been used in several speeches uh, previously, most uh, uh, best heard, I think, in Detroit uh, not long before. And um, Wyatt Walker said to him, don't don't use the dream bit. It's you know you've 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 done it over and over again. It's hackneyed. It's it's tired. Do, do something new. And um, 
And let's talk about this, Gary, that I mean, you write about this so eloquently in the speech. He had just talked about it at addressing the what Insurance Association of America. And before that, a few weeks before Detroit. That's right. uh, So I think uh, before insurers in Chicago. And um, uh, I mean, King had given a lot of speeches during that time. But you have to remember, lots of people didn't have television. uh, And so uh, this was his chance to speak both to America and to the world. Um, Unless you're in the movement uh, or you're African-American and active in the church, he maybe probably hadn't heard him speak. So this was his chance. And he was worried that it was going to sound too hackneyed. Uh, uh, too trite. That's what um, Wyatt Walker said. It's, it's trite, and so if you listen to the to the speech, he is actually winding down. And he used to say when he was speaking, it was like uh, um, looking for a place to land. Like he was a pilot looking for a place to land, and you can hear him saying, "Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama." He's he's looking for a place to land. And it's Mahalia Jackson, whose uh, uh, whose voice we heard right at the beginning, who was at the Detroit march, who says, "Tell them about the dream, man. Tell them <laughs> about the dream." And Clarence Jones, uh, who had written the first draft uh, of the the draft that was printed of the speech, but doesn't have the dream in it, uh, he that he saw King in his body shift from a politician to a preacher, and he turned to the person next to him and said, these people don't know, but they're about to go to church. And then King starts on his uh, dream, uh, on his dream sequence, which becomes the thing that is best known about what well, is called the dream speech for a reason. And Gary Young, let's talk about another addition um, that he was warned. No, you've said this before. Don't say it again. I want to play the clip of Dr. King talking about the bad check. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Dr. Martin Luther King, 60 years ago today, talk about the bad check and how it made it into this speech, Gary. Well, he was he was uh, he was very keen that um, that there was some kind of analogy or description that would uh, uh, that would span in a way from slavery 
through to the 60s and make it clear um, uh, in, a, in a, as accessible a way as possible that um, short of talking about reparations, uh, which, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have really worked in that kind of uh, venue, that America owes us. And it owes us morally, but it also owes us materially. Uh, there were some who were not keen on that kind of uh, uh, that analogy. They thought it went too far. They thought it was too crude. Um, but actually, in in some ways, I think it's the most. It's not the it's not the most florid piece of the speech, but it it's in some ways the most important because. It speaks to now that the the, the check keeps dancing, and in fact, um, um, in a way, things are going backwards. The account is getting worse if we look at them rolling back the voting rights and uh, affirmative action, uh, and so on. And one has to to uh, think. And some of the people that I spoke to for the book said this: how people would understand this differently if it was understood as the bad check speech, as the promissory note speech, um, how uh, that might shift their understanding. Because actually what happens with this speech is that all sorts of people, awful people and good people, but the open will take a moment from this speech and claim it, including Ron DeSantis did his anti-woke bill. He evoked Martin Luther King and the... That, that one line about um, the uh, his children being judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That's the only line that uh, right wingers and Republicans know. And actually, even Ron DeSantis, even when talking about banning books that would really refer to the roots of this struggle, evokes uh, Martin Luther King, which is why I thought it was so important to write the book because I felt that. He and this speech had to be reclaimed and positioned in its in its kind of rightful space. And I wanted to make a contribution to that. And in talking about the bad check, the issue of the insufficient funds, um, it reinforces the name of the speech, the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, not just for freedom, uh, talking about the economic plight of a population that had been formerly enslaved. Um, if you can also talk about what is most misunderstood about August 28, 1963, about this gathering where early in the morning reporters were um, on radio and television saying, it looks like not that many people are going to come out. Um, you have the amazing organizers of this speech, A. Philip Randolph. You have Bayard Rustin. Rustin, you write about taking out um, uh, his watch and a blank piece of paper when reporters are saying, doesn't look like you're going to have anyone coming to the speech. And he said, no. And the paper was blank. What did he say? Um, we're right on we're schedule. Right on schedule. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, we have to understand that a march of this size had actually never been organized before in the capital. That the um, that the state assumed that there would be violence and militarized the capital uh, uh, to a huge to a huge extent. And in the end, there was there was no violence. Um, that, as you have pointed out, it was a march of jobs and freedom organized jointly, civil rights movement, 
and the uh, uh, and the labour movement, uh, class and race, I, I, an implicit, I think, understanding that to try and understand racism without class or class oppression without race is to really misunderstand them both completely. Um, so that makes it a march for, uh, as you say, for jobs and freedom. This uh, this force of energy that is Bayard Rustin, uh, this uh, gay African-American man who stands at the heart of uh, the organisational excellence, really, in getting everybody into the city and out of the city, to the extent that the, the minutiae went to telling people don't bring egg mayonnaise sandwiches, it's going to be a hot day, the mayonnaise will go off, it will get you sick, there are only so many toilets. That is the extent of the kind of uh, organisation that there was. A fragile coalition, uh, which included some of the more conservative elements and the unions were among some of the more conservative elements in some ways, and SNCC and the the sprightly, fighty John Lewis, the late John Lewis, who, um, uh, whose speech was the subject of frantic last-minute negotiations because he wanted to talk about um, the protesters marching through the South, as Sherman did. You know, uh, Gary, we've got a clip of John Lewis speaking at the march. He was the youngest speaker. He was 23 years old. Um, this is John Lewis. Those who have said, be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We want our freedom and we want it now, John Lewis said at the age of 23, a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee known as SNCC. Uh, He originally wrote for this speech, as you were talking, Gary, about these frantic negotiations forcing him to rewrite his speech. He originally wrote, we cannot depend on any political party for both the Democrats and the Republicans have betrayed the basic principles of the Declaration of Independence. We will march to the South through the heart of Dixie the way Sherman did. We shall pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground nonviolently. Take it from there, Gary. Well, you see the energy of what will soon become the Black Power movement. You see the negotiations with uh, uh, a more religious uh, uh, an older generation and the union movement. In the end, it's A. Philip Randolph who says, I've been waiting for this moment because A. Philip Randolph sought to organize uh, a march on Washington, I think, in 1943, certainly during the war. Uh, it may have been 42, but it was in order to ensure that black people could um, work in the munitions factories. And he only called it off when. Uh, Roosevelt relented and um, uh, issued an executive order. And he said to um, uh, John Lewis, I've been, young man, I've been waiting for this time kind of all of my life 
please, please uh, do this for me. And um, uh, and Lewis relents. But then also that energy from Lewis also kind of tells a story about what happened during that year. Because at the beginning of that year, only Randolph and Rustin really wanted to march. The, um, uh, the NAACP, the Urban League, uh, all of those, they didn't really want anything to do with it. And actually SNCC, uh, the SNCC crowd thought it would be like a big show, a march in Washington, whereas they wanted to march on Washington. And it's really the events at, in Birmingham, Alabama, earlier in the year, which force the leadership. This comes from the grassroots. It forces the leadership to say, well, now we have to have a march. We have to do something. And in the story of that year is the leaders literally, well, figuratively running to catch up with the base, which on the day they literally do because they're in, they go to meet Congress, um, the people in Congress, and the march starts without them. And they have to kind of run to catch up. And the picture that there is, um, which looks like they're leading the march, actually they're near the front, but they're not at the front. They just clear people to make it look uh, look as though it was. And there's an f- interesting moment where um, King and Randolph and uh, and um, others, for James Foreman uh, from CORE, they are in uh, uh, speaking to Kennedy just a week or so before the march, and Kennedy's trying to get them to call it off. And Randolph says, uh, he says, we we want we want legislation on the hill, not a big show, not uh, Negroes in the streets. And Randolph says the Negroes are already on the streets, Mr. President, and I doubt if we called them that they would get off. And that gives you a really clear, clear indication of who was really driving this and what was really driving this. Gary Young, we want to thank you so much for being with us, professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, currently in Italy. He's the author of several books, including The Speech, the story behind Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, which has just been updated with a new prologue for this 60th anniversary of that historic day in Washington. Gary Young's forthcoming book is Dispatches from the Diaspora, from Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter. Coming up, the city of White Plains, New York, has agreed to a $5 million settlement with the family of Kenneth Chamberlain, the black 68-year-old former Marine shot dead by police in his own apartment after he accidentally triggered his medical alert pendant, and they came for a wellness check. Back in 30 seconds. Oh, Freedom, performed by Odetta. She performed Oh, Freedom 60 years ago at the March on Washington. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. The city of White Plains, New York, has agreed to a $5 million settlement with the family of Kenneth Chamberlain, a black 68-year-old former Marine shot dead by police in his own apartment. 
The tragic case occurred early on the morning of November 19, 2011, when Ken Chamberlain accidentally pressed the button on his medical alert system while sleeping. It was 5.22 in the morning. Responding to the alert, White Plains police arrived at Chamberlain's apartment in a public housing complex for a wellness check. By the time the police left the apartment just after 7 a.m., Kenneth Chamberlain was dead. They shot him twice in the chest. A police officer shot him inside his own home. Police gained entry to Ken Chamberlain's apartment only after they took his front door off its hinges. Officers first shot him with a taser, then a beanbag shotgun, then with live ammunition. In a moment, we'll be joined by Kenneth Chamberlain's son and by the attorney for the Chamberlain family. But first, we want to turn to the remarkable series of audio and video recordings from the morning of Mr. Chamberlain's death. A warning, these recordings are disturbing. After the White Plains police arrived at Ken Chamberlain's apartment, he told an operator from LifeAid that made the pendant that he wasn't sick and that he didn't need assistance. This is your help center for LifeAid. Mr. Chamberlain, do you need help? separate video, one of the officers, Stephen Hartz, heard hurling a racial epithet, the N-word, at Kenneth Chamberlain during the incident, or they think at this point it might have been him, it might have been another officer. Then you hear Chamberlain say, they've come to kill me. Yeah, but I'm not a doctor. I am fine. 
Despite Kenneth Chamberlain's comment that he had a bad heart, White Plains police broke down his door and they shot him with a taser. The date was November 19, 2011. Twelve years later, the city of White Plains, New York, has agreed to a $5 million settlement with Ken Chamberlain's family. We're joined right now by Kenneth Chamberlain, Jr. and Mayo Bartlett, attorney for the family. Um, he's the former chief of Bias Crimes Unit of the Westchester County District Attorney's Office and the former chair of the Westchester County Human Rights Commission. We welcome you both to Democracy Now!, Kenneth Chamberlain, Jr., I am sorry to play all that for you, even 12 years later, the agony that your father went through. Uh, and now you have this settlement. Can you talk about what it means to you? Well, good, good morning, Amy. The settlement itself, while—and not just speaking for my family, but other families as well— while it may provide some form of redress, it doesn't really address the broader issues when you're talking about police misconduct, brutality, and criminality. So I've always said that, yes, this should be part of the process, but it doesn't equate to accountability. How did you arrive at the settlement, and what have the police admitted they did? And were any police officers charged for your father's death? Well, no police officers have been charged to date. Now, as far as statements that have been made, I only know of one statement that was made by the PBA where they said that this settlement in no way is an admission of wrongdoing. And my response to that is very simple. If, if we're going to go with that statement that they made, well, there's one way that we can prove if there was been any wrongdoing or any bias and that would be to unseal the grand jury minutes and let's see what the instructions were to the grand jury in form of charges. Explain what you're asking for uh, more specifically about the grand jury. So what I'm asking for is, since my father was killed, you know, in May of 2012, they came back with no true bill. They said there wasn't sufficient enough evidence to charge the officers in the killing of my father. So my argument or my question has always been, well, what were the charges that were put on the table? Did they just put intentional murder? Did they put a hate crime for the fact that they called my father the N-word? Were there any other charges, lesser charges, criminally negligent homicide, manslaughter? We don't know. So, and because of grand jury secrecy laws, they have not revealed that to us. So... I've been asking that those minutes be unsealed now. Um, we know that the witnesses were police officers, so there shouldn't be an issue with regard to uh, unsealing them. Mayo Bartlett, we um, talked about Officer Hart. He actually died in a car crash, is that right? And was going to testify, um, would have testified on behalf of uh, Kenneth Chamberlain. Can you talk about that controversy around the use of the epithet, uh, uh, the N-word, uh, when they were going after uh, Mr. Chamberlain? 
Absolutely. Uh, well, Amy, first, uh, he would have testified on behalf of the White Plains uh, city, city of White Plains, but we believe his testimony would have been very favorable ah. because uh, his testimony would have shown that at the time of the shooting, Mr. Chamberlain was on his back and they could see the soles of his shoes. Um, with respect to the epithet, uh, we really don't know whether he's the one who has used that, that uh, slur. So we've been told that by the city, but we're not certain. Uh, he did die in a car accident. Unfortunately, he died before we were able even to take a deposition uh, that would be able to um, allow him at trial to testify. And what happened with Officer Anthony Corelli? Explain who it was who shot Mr. Chamberlain dead. Officer Corelli was uh, the point officer, so he was an officer who was there to cover to make sure that uh, the other officers were would be safe if there was an interaction uh, that became violent. And Officer Corelli is the one who ultimately fired the shot that killed Mr. Chamberlain. Um, but in our estimation, uh, even and to though be he's clear, the one this was the not shooter, the taser. Uh, we think that, but for uh, the behavior of the supervisors, uh, he would never have been there. Uh, in fact, they were there on a medical call, and on any medical call. It's hard to believe that uh, law enforcement is the first to arrive. And in fact, during the entire interaction, no medical personnel were ever given an opportunity to even meet with Mr. Chamberlain or to speak with Mr. Chamberlain. I mean, this is truly astounding, um, Kenneth Chamberlain Jr. It, your aunt was there, right, in the hallway, uh, Mr. Chamberlain's sister. And she told the police that he was suffering from mental health issues, from PTSD, and they had to be very, very careful. Is that right? Well, my, my aunt was on the phone speaking to them. It was my aunt's daughter, my cousin Tanya, who was in the hallway. And you even hear in the audio when they ask, do you have family? You hear her very loudly say, yes, he does. But they totally ignored her. They acted as if she wasn't even there. You have come to devote your life, Ken Chamberlain Jr., to say the least very effectively, to dealing with the issue of police brutality. Talk about the group you formed and how you've been dealing with this over the last more than a decade. So after the killing of my father, we formed the Westchester Coalition for Police Reform. Uh, this coalition, you know, the bottom line is, is that we're looking at transparency. We want to work with local law enforcement agencies in order to build trust between law enforcement and the communities that they serve. But even bigger than that now, what I want to do is create a foundation now in my father's name where we're really going to look at best practices and really push so that the rule of law is adhered to, meaning that the government, its agents, and officials will be held to the same set of rules that enables a fair and functioning society. So we're going to be pushing to put laws in place and, and different mechanisms so that, God forbid, any other family has to deal with situations like this. We'll have something real in place, and we won't be trying to figure out how to put a blueprint together. We'll have a blueprint. Mayor Bartlett, is this one of the largest settlements the city of White Plains has ever made with a victim of police brutality? Yes, my understanding is that this is the largest settlement um, with respect to police brutality from the city of White Plains. And, I mean, you are the former chief of the Bias Crimes Unit of the Westchester uh, DA's office, also former chair of the Westchester County Human Rights Commission. Um, do you feel that 
the situation is getting any better. What kind of regulation of police is there? Well, it's interesting. Um, in New York State, uh, only 25 percent of the police departments are actually certified. Uh, so the fact that uh, we have that and the fact that in Westchester County only 50 percent are is a significant problem. It means that there's no uniform training. Uh, you don't have an expectation that any particular police department is going to uh, behave the way another would. So what we're asking for is unified standards. Uh, we think also that it can't come in the form of an executive order, but we need actual structural change. It has to be something that's codified in law and that police themselves should be required to have a license, as do uh, accountants, beauticians, barbers, uh, lawyers, doctors, and that if they engage in certain misconduct, that they would lose that license and not be able to simply resign and go to another police department. Uh, too often we rely on executive orders, and executive orders, uh, although they may be a great stopgap, go away once the next administration comes into power. Mm. Uh, the White Plains Police Benevolent Association uh, has said, to be clear, the settlement is not a finding of misconduct or wrongdoing by the officers who responded to this call. Our members are asked to place their lives in jeopardy each and every day, as they were on the date of this incident. I'd like you each to respond as we begin to wrap up this conversation, beginning with Mayo Bartlett. Um, I think that it's unfortunate that sometimes um, PBAs miss opportunities to bring people together. Um, when you consistently find no wrongdoing, irrespective of the conduct, whether you're watching 20 officers or more beat Rodney King, or you're watching uh, other clear uh, missteps and atrocities, uh, to always say that we've done nothing wrong, I think, does not invite the conversation that we can have, which can bridge the gap and can actually build confidence through transparency. Uh, the city itself made a very different statement, and their statement was that they want to continue to improve the department, they want to have more training, and they want to take steps to make sure that things like what happened to Mr. Chamberlain don't happen again. I think that that's a more accurate and helpful statement, and unfortunately, uh, the statement of the PBA does not, in my opinion, benefit the uh, officers who work in the city of White Plains or anywhere else. And Kenneth Chamberlain, and, we, and just, just, add to we just have about a minute, and I wanted to give you the last word, Kenneth Chamberlain, on that issue and any other you want to address right now. Okay, well, I, w I would just simply say that two years ago, uh, the current district attorney conducted a review around the killing of my father to see if there could be any new charges uh, brought forth in this. But that means that they reviewed what the original charges were. So I would just simply ask that they give us the actual review from Deborah Voice and unseal the grand jury minutes. And although we know it's not what you know, it's what you can prove, I, would, I believe that if you do unseal these things, that we'll see that there was bias in favor of law enforcement. And other than that, may there be accountability for Kenneth Chamberlain Sr., and may there be accountability for all families impacted by police violence. Well, again, our condolences, uh, they are never too late, unfortunately. Kenneth Chamberlain, Jr., son of Kenneth Chamberlain, shot dead by police in White Plains in New York in November of 2011. And Mayo Bartlett, attorney for the Chamberlain family. The city of White Plains, New York, has agreed to a $5 million settlement with the Chamberlain family, the largest settlement around police violence in White Plains ever. 
That does it for our show. To see our past interviews, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.